Hello, freaks, and welcome to Radical Research. That's Vandergraaf Generator, and this is Radical Research number 31. Kinda. 31 and a half. Might as well count it as 32. We um, we botched this one when Hunter was up here visiting. It was our first attempt to do a face-to-face episode. It shouldn't have been difficult. The conversation went very, very well, as I remember. Yes. but It, was, it, would, have, it would have been a, a very solid episode had... Yeah. We sort of ironed out all the technical kinks. I'll say me because I'm sort of in charge of that. I'll I'll take I'll take the fall, but whatever. We had a really good visit. Um, as you reminded me, I was bummed when we found out it was botched completely. You reminded me that hey man, we were hanging out with each other, drinking beer, talking about Vandergraaf, and listening to Vandergraaf. So that's not terrible by any stretch. That is not a lost afternoon, <laughs> right? So. And, you know, your visit was great. We had amazing food. Um, the beer was almost as good. Uh, fine fellowship all around. All, all around. Some incredible listening. Uh, I turned you on to Gestures of Destiny. Oh, yeah. I've been digging that grave ever since. Uh, <laughs> till the end of time, baby. <laughs> uh, we had a great, great, probably our best listen collectively and individually to Voivod's Nothing Face with our friend Tom Haley, who came up yes. for the afternoon. It's never sounded better to me. 
I mean, it's kind of miraculous, actually. I, mean, I have no idea how many times the three of us have heard that record, but there was something fresh about that listen. Well, I think it was because we did it together. We have a mutual affinity for it. We each understand it on that deeper level, I think, because we have right. heard it so many times. And just kind of having communion with that together was pretty nice. It was. You know, maybe, maybe the highlight of the weekend, your purchase of uh, Rotting Christ Passage to Arcturo on vinyl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was not the my checkbooks highlight of the week, <laughs> um, but that's fine. I mean, it was uh, an acceptable loss. Yeah, we went to this great record store in Greensboro called Hippo, and I walked in, and immediately I was like compelled to the left side of the room, and I look up, and there's this original pressing of uh, Passage Dark Toro in, in quite good condition, too. And I, I, like, I, I actually forsook pretty much my every other purchase. I did pick up uh, first pressing of uh, Decease, 13 Frightened Souls EP, original German pressing that was in exquisite shape. Yeah. But anyway, after those two records, I couldn't really afford anything else. Uh, but we went back to Jeff's place and threw on Passage, and it, it was a pretty powerful listen. I think you would agree. Yeah, it, it emanated pretty well in that room. There was some reverberations going on that were uh, pretty powerful. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah, it was very very good listen to that thing. Yeah, so good stuff. Uh, shout out to Patrick at Hippo, the great guy, and uh, de- definitely runs the best record store in the triad. So here we go, talking about Vandegraaff. And uh, let's not you know belabor the point that we botched uh, some attempts to do it uh, between your visit and now. Uh, here we go. Thanks to our listeners for being patient and uh, giving us three weeks between episodes for the first time ever. We're going to continue on our biweekly run uh, up until at least 50. We might take a few weeks break after that one. But uh, yeah, don't mind talking about this great band and revisiting these tunes again. My intro to the band was pretty significant, and I think it's one of the reasons they're so deeply embedded in my DNA. I think they would be, no matter what the introduction was, because they're just that great. But, um, you know, my entry to Prague was, if you're not counting Rush, it was King Crimson. And um, then uh, shortly after that came Camel and I think Nectar uh, were the next bands I discovered, probably because those records were just a little more readily available than some of the more obscure prog stuff but yeah then then came vandergraaf generator and uh by way of a, a compilation tape made for me by uh at the time a pen friend named natalie who was uh into lots of weird stuff and um it had the song killer on it from h to he who am the only one their third full length man I, I gotta tell you once i got turned on to killer i gobbled up the first eight records of their 70s run in that initial infatuation and just they became a top three prog band for me very very special uh they're like blood and oxygen for me what was your intro to them so it's kind of a similar trajectory i I, king crimson was my first like real prog band like you i was in a rush uh previously and i was i just became obsessed um particularly with the wet and era of crimson and robert fripp's approach to guitar and um, I did a little digging and found out that he was associated. I didn't really know to what extent um, with this curiously named band called the uh, Vandergraaff Generator, and that he'd played on some of their earlier records. And um, I wound up uh, buying Pawn Hearts, and mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. just that was pretty much it. 
you mentioned Fripp and how he guested on their album. And, you, you know, you might think, well, why would he guest if they had a guitarist? Well, they didn't have a guitarist. Um, right. This band was infamous. I mean, every now and then Hamill would play in the studio or live. He'd play guitar. But it wasn't common. It wasn't a go-to for them. And, in fact, after the third album, after um, early bassist Nick Potter left, they kind of just didn't replace him with a bassist. They either <laughs> used pedals played by either Hugh Banton, the keyboardist, or Peter Hamill, uh, or you know, just did some bass stuff in the studio. But they were sort of amazingly didn't have a whole lot of bass or guitar in this band. And yet somehow the sound is so rich. You, I mean, you never sense the absence of anything. Well, well listen to the song we opened with, A Place to Survive, from the World Record album. It uh, came out in late 76. I mean, that, got, that has phenomenal groove um, and these great kind of tactile organ sounds. And I th- oh, very. Yeah, they're physical. Yeah. And I think that's part of the, the appeal and how they got away with not having a bassist or even a guitarist was uh, their sound was filled up by these two organs because you would often have Hamill and Hugh Banton playing together um, not even a lot of synth but definitely a lot of organ and uh, these organs Hugh Banton liked to hook them up to effects pedals he had this Farfisa sure. organ and he'd, he'd take the Farfisa and hook it up to these effects pedals kind of the, the kind that people were used to hearing you know Hendrix plug into his guitar and um, got these monstrous sounds out of it it worked extremely well Peter of course we've mentioned him Peter Hamill main guy in the band played a variety of instruments as well and Hamill parallel to Vandergraaff Generator was making solo albums under his name pretty much throughout their entire 70s run and even back to the late 60s like from what I've read the earliest formation of Vandergraaff Generator was Peter and some other guys and even a couple dancers uh, for the stage thing Um, that dissolved pretty quickly Peter started creating what was to be his first solo album since the initial Vandergraaff Generator thing didn't work out Uh, But by the time that album reached completion in the studio, he'd gathered a band lineup that was dubbed Vandergraaf Generator again, and that's the Aerosol Grey Machine album. That thing came out in 1969. Shortly after Aerosol Grey Machine came out, I think it was when he put out his Fool's Mate album under the Peter Hamill name. So already he's running this concurrent solo career, and some of those solo albums are phenomenal too, man. Oh, yeah, and and also quite melancholic and... Tragic. Melancholic, tragic, uh, dark, brooding. Um, Beautiful, too. All that great stuff we associate with Vandergraaf, uh, you know, Hamill had, too. I have to say, um, his solo song, uh, The Louse Is Not a Home, is like one of my favorite moments in the 70s, probably. Yeah, it's a great one. I remember seeing that on a recent playlist of yours, and that is a great yes. listen just in and of itself. Gog Magog and Bromine Chambers. Uh, oh, yeah. One of the more experimental things he did uh, as a solo artist. But, man, yeah, I mean, the discography of Vandergraaf and Hamill put together is extremely rich and so rewarding uh, and, and a little bit challenging. Yes. Yeah. But that there's the fun. <laughs> exactly. So, as you can probably tell, Peter, definitely the anchor of this band. He also influenced people like Bruce Dickinson, who you've probably heard of. Rob Halford, who I think you've probably heard of. <laughs> uh, Piggy and Away from Voivod always spoke highly of Vandergraaf Generator. Even John Lydon, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, in the midst of like the 77, you know, kill your idols, you know, everything before is dead. John Lydon was like listening to, you know, like Lee Scratch Perry and Vandergraaf Generator, you know? Yes, and he was. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know the one of the major 
objections that a lot of the punks had to prog rock was its um, its grandiosity. You know, its um, its kind of almost arrogant ambition. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is like you don't like it's rich as Vandergraaf's music is, like, you don't get that. I mean, like Jeff said, I mean, literally they are down to the bare bones, uh, making this incredibly elemental music. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, too, is they they definitely did have long songs. I mean, they they followed a lot of the tropes of, quote-unquote, typical prog, but they sat outside of that equally well, I think. Mm -hmm. There's a certain attitude about this music. Yeah. We'll listen to another bit of that attitude, I think. We can hear that in uh, Pilgrims, which is from the Still Life album. came out in early 76. This was a year where they had two full lengths come out, back in those glorious 70 days when that could happen. Yeah. Yeah, this is Pilgrims. Yeah, so as we said, these guys were prone to longer songs. I mean, they had these three, four, five-song albums, and um, uh, somehow they appealed to people who normally wouldn't tolerate such a thing. Um, we should probably mention the other two guys quick as well. Uh, we've got David Jackson on saxophone and sometimes flute. He'd blow on two sax mouthpieces at the same time. Mm, like, uh, a, yeah, Rashawn Roland Kirk style. Just like that, yeah. Um uh, and then Guy Evans, a uh, great drummer. Love Guy Evans. Yeah, he's he's kind of in the Bill Ward school of like feel and groove and wildness, but he's got this sort of jazzy background to him. 
He's got a, a Michael Giles. It's like Bill Ward meets Michael Giles. I like the Michael Giles reference. That's totally on point. And I, I think if you mix him with Bill Ward, yeah, there you go. Equals. <laughs> Dude, that's a badass drummer. Right equals there. Guy Evans. Yeah, <laughs> no, Guy Evans is great. Also, you know, I don't know if we mentioned this when we were talking about Hamill's solo stuff, but he made solo albums with these guys. And when they got back together as Vandergraaf Generator in 75 for God Bluff after a bit of a hiatus, which we'll, you know, talk about in a bit, there really wasn't a whole lot of like upset in the lineup because it was the same guys and he'd been recording solo records with these guys too. So you could almost say that <laughs> yeah. something like Silent Corner and the Empty Stage or In Camera were honorary Vandergraaf records in a way. I'm. I'd be happy to say that. Yeah. Where do you stand with like Still Life and God Bluff, the stuff that kind of came in that second wave for them um, after the hiatus? Um, I love it now. Um, so I um, I did basically albums two, three, and four. That was my initial run. Um, yeah. In fact, I didn't get Aerosol until several years later. Okay. Um, but then when I got into like God Bluff and Still Life, especially Still Life, it was almost so like pastoral um, that it didn't make as much sense to me, even though there's always been that uh, sort of wistful um, kind of vibe to some Vandergraaf music. Yeah, um, it was it was I guess it was disproportionate for me. OK, it was less of the like the, you know, mad visceral incendiary kind of stuff and more of like you know the yeah the meditative side yeah, of it. yeah they were definitely going there and i think by the time they got to world record and uh the quiet zone the pleasure dome they were definitely streamlining just a little bit i think that was pretty easy to see but it it took some doing and it took some growing pains to get there uh you mentioned a couple things that i think are kind of cool to talk about um for one they were a lot like king crimson who were equally strong in their softer moments because I mm-hmm. I don't think you're saying I don't think we're saying that you know Vandergraaf's quieter more mellow side was any less important or interesting it it, oh, it, was, no. it was great oh, um, no it was awesome yeah and on the other side of the coin you know once you get into like still life because I think God Bluff still has a, a bit of dread and terror in there oh I think we're gonna we'll demonstrate that yeah uh, but one once they get to still life and then world record you know I think that is definitely pushed to the margins at that point just a little mm-hmm. bit. Which almost makes it like weirdly more threatening. For sure. Because it's like, you know, because it's, it is always there because it's just a part of who Vandergraaf is. But it, like you say, it just stays on the sidelines and just kind of leers. <laughs> and, and all Hamill stuff, no matter what it is, it, it tends to have this undercurrent of melancholy and the doom of life and it's fatalistic. Uh, yes. yet we get uplift as well. So he really was so good at towing the line and blurring the lines between, you know, the dread and the uplift. And this is this is probably them in a nutshell, I suppose. Sure. Um, we talked about Robert Fripp guesting a little bit. He doesn't choose to guest on things that are any anything less than awesome, generally. So if you've got Robert Fripp on your album, you're doing pretty well, too. By the time of their third album, Fripp came in, did some guitar, on H to H E, who am the only one? We're going to listen to a song from that album called "The Emperor in His War Room." Uh, I think I think Fripp really lifts this song, which is, this song is great in and of itself. But Fripp completely puts his stamp on it. If you're familiar with Crimson and Fripp, you will hear it.
So if there's one thing better than Robert Fripp playing a track, it's overlapped Robert Fripp <laughs> playing over himself. Yes. Am I right? <laughs> Absolutely. I was just saying, I wish he had done that more often. Yeah. I mean, he would, of course, later on, you know, work with loops and be kind of a pioneer in that world. But uh, you kind of hear him presaging that a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really great. And, you know, Hamill's delivery there, uh, we're going to talk about Hamill a lot because he was the focal point of this band. Um, his delivery there, especially right at the end of that snippet, just great dramatic stuff. I mean, he was such a painter of pictures, you know, not just lyrically and thematically, but just the melodic choices and the emotion. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain theatricality to it. Yeah. Um, it, it feels like he's, I don't even know if theatricality is the word for it. It's almost like a summoning. You know, he's like digging down, you know, very, very deeply with inside of himself to come up with the stuff. And, and some would call it overwrought in a pejorative sense, but I find it overwrought in the best sense. <laughs> oh, absolutely. He's giving all. Like, he's just opening and giving, like, pretty much all of himself away. Precisely. Yeah. I hear him, you know, through a lot of his work, you know, a guy through, going through a catharsis, and it seems very necessary um, you can certainly say that throughout his 80s and 90s and 2000s work in, in, in the solo world, too. You had mentioned in our first conversation uh, it, it being kind of a, quote, process of exorcism. Unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, like we said, his music is sort of always haunted, um, and it's, it's always burdened um, by fatalism, you know, the inevitability of, of our mortality, you know, the uncertainty of things after this world. Yep. There's a lot of anxiety in this music. And I feel, you know, I'm, we're kind of reading biography into this without really knowing, but it, it sounds like someone 
who is trying to cope with all of these really big ideas and using his music to do that. Yeah, and like I said, I you know, I think you can read that into his solo work too and there's so much solo work, like the volume that he's yeah, it's, produced. Yeah, it's intimidating. Yeah, and I and I think that that becomes necessary catharsis for him. It's it does not about how many records he sells or, you know, if 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 fans of old Vandergraaf are going to like what he's doing on Singularity for instance, you know, it's more just I have to do this. I have to get this out. And right. the results are often quite beautiful, if, if a little bit trying sometimes. So The Emperor in His War Room that we just listened to from late 1970, their third album. Let's go back even further and talk about the earliest days. Their first album was enmeshed in that whole psych London UFO sound. Uh, UFO being the club um, that hosted a lot of these psychedelic bills. They did originate from Manchester, but... You know, they moved a lot in the London circles at that time, 67, 68, 69, uh, when they were forming, and uh, came into their own really more on their second album, The Least We Can Do Is Wave To Each Other, right? Yeah, I mean, Aerosol Grey Machine could have only been made in 1969. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very much suspended in that era, um, whereas the albums that follow are almost outside of any era. Um, there's this sort of timelessness to them. And yeah, like they completely start to segue into what would become, you know, some of the trademark devices of Vandergraaff Generator. Yeah. The, the melancholy, which is almost unbearable at spots. It, that it, that's a, can be a tough listen. <laughs> I mean, really, it's, it's, it's a painful record in a lot of places. <laughs> right. You know, we, we talked about some of the, the fierier moments of those early Vandergraaff generators, the, you know, the pre, pre God bluff era. And those, I guess those moments are so exciting that we, you know, they tend to be more apparent, but there's this very kind of pastoral and understated sadness that threads throughout their music. Um, and I, I have in the past several years have gone through a a few big life changes and, and led me into some dark places and, I would often often uh, break out Peter Hamill solo records, especially like um, Silent Corner and uh, In Camera, and think, okay, this will it'll do me some good to hear someone um, who's also going through something. Mm-hmm. And it often had the opposite effect. <laughs> it's like you know, put up the razor blades. <laughs> this is not helping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You and Peter are forming a suicide pact right now. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes that works and sometimes it really doesn't. <laughs> I cannot remember if I've mentioned this on previous episodes. We're starting to get uh, long in the tooth or longer in the tooth than I ever thought we would be But um, in terms of our, our episodes. But um, I used to, you know, when I would drink in the early to mid-20s, and, I, you know, I still drink beer and stuff, but, like, you know, those times when you're partying hard and you're waking up with hangovers, I would sometimes put on Confessor Condemned because it always had this effect of, like, God, I'm feeling so awful, but at least somebody else is feeling worse. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Feels like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing's clear to me. Like, and it's yeah, just exactly. 45 minutes of like pain. And like, it actually, it really did have this cathartic effect. Like, it really helped, like, kind of get me out of that, like, misery of the, of the AM hangover, you know? Wow. Um, well, if, I, if I'm ever hungover again, I'm, I'm going to try that out. I don't know if it works in like later years, in later life, but uh, it certainly Screw works. Screw you, Advil. So yeah, we're going to focus a little bit now on the second album, The Least We Can Do Is Wave To Each Other. Great title. 
This album found Vandergraaf Generator as the first band signed to Tony Stratton Smith's Charisma label. Uh, that's a classic label in the prog rock world. Probably needs a little introduction to even entry level prog heads. Genesis was on that label. Uh, Alan Parsons actually had actually had some stuff on that label overseas. A prog folk band called Lindisfarne. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but um, in passing, yeah, yeah, and like uh, Peter Gabriel solo. Oh, wow. Okay. Because Steve Hackett was also on Charisma. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Brand and, X. Um, uh, Hawkwind was at a time, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and The Nice, who featured uh, yeah. Keith Emerson. Of course, they were they were very much a proto-prog band. Very important. Yeah. Charisma Records. Great, great prog label. I love having a record on that label. You get the kind of pink Mad Hatter uh, label. Pretty infamous and fun to look at and pretty nostalgic. Yep. We picked two songs from The Least We Can Do. Two of the most dominant dark moments, I think, really just shows how heavy this band could get. First will be After the Flood, and then two moments from White Hammer. White Hammer, man, um, deals with the Inquisition, the Maleos, Maleficarum, Papal Order, all that great stuff. Surely an anti-Catholic song, and not the first band we featured on Radical Research that seemed strongly anti-Catholic. Do you remember the other one? Give me a second. You want a hint? Yeah. Swedish? Afflicted? Carbonized. Oh, carbonized. Yep. Yeah. Carbonized. Carbonized. <laughs> carbonized for the win, Alex. What is carbonized? Yeah, so we're going to listen to After the Flood and White Hammer.
the beginning. This is the beginning of the end. I
always super heavy to me and always thought that that would be a great song for maybe a doom metal band to cover yeah who who could handle that best and we don't have to stick to like who's current we could we can go back oh yeah i feel like solstice could have been pretty cool Oh, okay. I didn't think of them. That's that's a good one. It have to be on the epic side. I, somehow I think of Reverend Bazaar. I'm not like the hugest fan oh. of that band, but they could get just supremely heavy at times. They could get epic. They had enough melody. Uh, they could handle it. I wonder. If, I wonder about them too. But yeah, Solstice oh. is a good one. Solitude Eternus. You know. Yep. You, you wonder about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and they had that element. I mean, things like Emperor in his War Room and After the Flood, not, and not just the song titles, but um, <laughs> right. just a lot of the vibes. I mean, very apocalyptic. And we, we had joked before uh, our first attempt at recording this episode about how many times we'd say apocalyptic. Because um, <laughs> the great thing about them is they had one foot in the 60s, but then another in the new decade where they were very much actively disengaging from the 60s, I think. Oh, absolutely. And we hear that in these snippets. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like Aerosol Gray was so firmly enmeshed in all the, you know, the optimism of the, at least the, like, the the sound, which was an emblem of the optimism of the 60s. Yes. And then after that, it's sort of like the dream died almost immediately for Peter Hamill. <laughs> right, um, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true because... You know, the first album came out in 69. That was the year of Altamont, I guess, December 69. But that was that infamous break in the summer of love, you know, the summer that started in 67. And then Altamont came two years later. It was this point of like demarcation for the hippie era turning dark. And you don't look to Vandergraaf Generator for hippie promise, um, nor King Crimson. But this stuff, just like Black Sabbath was, was a real kind of reality check. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's it's seeing the world through pretty sober eyes, I would yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think they rang in the 70s in a way that Black Sabbath did as well. Of course, they don't get as much credit as Sabbath did. Um, it's debatable whether they should, but I certainly think that the intent is there where you're moving on from this pie-in-the-sky promise to reality. Like, let's let's look at things for what they are rather than what they want them to be. And it's right. not very optimistic. It's very pessimistic, but th- this is what it is. And, I, you know, I can't speak for people like Iomi or Hamill, but obviously, but dwelling on the dark side and going for something meaner and sicker, I, I think it was probably a really new and interesting creative palette for guys like this to create from. It wasn't... Sure. That wasn't so common in, like, the late 60s, right? No. No, I don't think it would have even, like, been acceptable. And I, I mean, I don't know that the you know the early works of Black Sabbath and Vandergraaff were universally accepted either. But I mean, yeah, I mean, really, it is kind of trailblazing work. It, it is, and I think it's partly why they were so reviled then, and partly why they're so lauded now. Because we look at that, and we, right. we look at that in hindsight, and go, "Wow, they were they were really uh, ahead of the curve in a lot of ways." Let's go back to that first album. <laughs> As we've said, certainly a product of the 60s, every aspect of it, the title, uh, the cover art. Lots of that album is a little more straightforward, but still pretty great. You can hear how it would have worked as a Hamill solo album with Running Back, which is an excellent song, not about the football position, Running Back, but um, it's all very 60s and yet, you know, still very recognizable as Vandergraaff, probably a lot because of the personnel and because of the guy leading it. And, you know, you think about some other debuts from who, who, you know, bands that became prog rock legends like Yes. I mean, their first album wasn't quite as good as Aerosol. 
Or the first Genesis album. Yeah, from Genesis to Revelation, it's hardly a masterpiece. I'll make concessions for that album, but they, they truly found themselves on Trespass, there's no doubt. Where I think uh, Aerosol, it doesn't arrive as well-formed as, say, the first King Crimson, but it certainly is a confident step. I don't think it's anything to be embarrassed about. Okay, now that I've mentioned Crimson, I guess we have to like look at that elephant in the room. In the Court of the Crimson King was really fully formed when it came out. Oh, it's like perfect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, epitaph. Yeah. Nobody should have that on their debut. <laughs> you know, it, tangent alert, tangent alert. I, I've heard people say that like In the Court of the Crimson King is really dated sounding. And What? I mean, of course it's dated. It was recorded in 69. It was recorded in 1969, but... Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want it to sound anything other than 69, right? Well, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's ridiculous. No, I don't. I don't. I don't dig the dated argument. I've never have. Never bought it. I mean, records are snapshots in time for sure, and and they reflect a you know a broader environment than than you know just within the songs themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And if if in the court of the Crimson King is dated, man, I'll take dated any time because that's yeah. that's that's some phenomenal dating right there. Um, but yeah, we're going to go back to the first Vanagraph. We've been talking about it a lot. Let's actually listen to it. And we did select one of the more experimental kind of forward looking moments on aerosol gray machine. This is a compelling bit from octopus.
I think you can listen to that as a bit of a premonition. That And like Jeff said, that's one of the more tortured and uh, experimental moments on that record. But, you know, a lot of the fundamentals that would come to define the early 70s era Vandergraaff are in place in that song. You get the distorted low organ and, you know, Hamill's trademark caterwauling. I, like, I really like the quality of his voice in those early days. I'm not going to say I like it better than anything else he did later, but there was something more youthful about it. Obviously, he was younger, so there's that. But um, he took on a throatier, kind of more, um, man, I don't even know how to describe it, just throatier. I know what you're saying, though. Yeah, and it just, it was, it was there was less buoyancy to it, and therefore... Uh, less less optimism in it. I mean, at least in the early days, you could see a little bit of light. I, I think when I think when you get to later Hamill, like late seventies and some of the stuff he's doing in the eighties, like he got real dreary. And um, oh yeah, that was part of the appeal. Like I would I wouldn't want those records to sound any different or his voice to sound any different. But uh, yeah, there was there was a definite shift. And um, I think in all eras, he was a fantastic singer, and we do hear that you know in Octopus. We jumped from the first Vandergraaff Generator album to the third. They were pretty prolific at this time. Um, there's only about 18 months, I think, between the first and third albums. We're going to listen to Killer from the H2HE Who Am The Only One album. Any idea what that title means? I mean, other than the chemical symbols for hydrogen and helium? I do not. <laughs> do, do you? Want to hazard a guess? No, I don't. I, I have no idea. And, and the bizarre album cover doesn't really give up anything either. No, no. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> well, maybe let's give it some thought during this next clip.
Killer from late 1970. That was the first song I heard by Vandergraaf Generator, as I mentioned. That was one where I was just obsessed with it. Like, I just played over and over. Couldn't wait to get back from where I was so I could hear it again. That sort of song. And um, I'm not sure if it has that grip on you, but I think it's one of those songs. Oh, it's amazing. But it wasn't my Vandergraaf origin story either. Right. Yeah, I, I, we all have those. And I think we connect to, to our origin story song or album, you know, in different ways. But uh, that was definitely mine. Can't say enough about that song and album. <laughs> uh, that's their third album. Totally great. Their fourth album, Pawn Hearts, just as great. Some would say their best. I would say their best. If you were pressed. If I were pressed, yes. All right. I'm not. Hold on. I'm pressing you. <laughs> pressing you right Don't now. Don't press me, bro. Don't press me. I'm going to grab generator favorites now. <laughs> Come on now. No, it, Pawn Hearts, three-song album, dominated both in running time and I think in legend by A Plague of Lighthouse Keepers. Mm. One, of, one of the great sidelong epics from the 70s. I mean, it's Absolutely. up there with Supper's Ready, Close to the Edge. This is This is right there. And it holds together compositionally like that. You know, not every bit, you know, like long album length or album side long songs were sort of de rigueur for the error. Uh, so it's like everyone did them, but not everyone did them well. Not everyone had the compositional wherewithal to pull off a, a very cohesive 22 minute piece. And I think what you'd get sometimes, and we'll, we won't name names this time around, but um, you'd get a lot of like solo moments. Um, right. Where they get into these flights of fancy with the drum solo, like you know, and there's nothing worse than an in-studio drum solo. You there's know. nothing worse than a drum solo <laughs> said by a drummer. So you know, yeah, they, drum solos are terrible. Yeah, we're gonna give you two different moments from the amazing plague of lighthouse keepers. This will be about a six-minute snippet, really one of the longest we'll ever give you. In the botched early afternoon show we did, uh, take one of this episode, uh, the skies were getting dark and gray. There was that pre-storm vibe in the air. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, oh dude, it was, yeah, it was perfect. Oh, it was, it was totally perfect. Right now it's nighttime, and it's still perfect. Yeah, exactly. Stone of the 
You are witnessing the murder of Jefferson Airplane right there. Hello, you big dumb skull refugees. It is now time for hot sponsor action. Today we look into the future. Lamentations of the Flame Princess, the mind-bending and merciless tabletop role-playing game, has three new books coming out, plus three new printings of older books. They should be out by the time that you read this. But at the time of recording, we don't know for sure. And since you're probably listening to this like three years after recording, it doesn't even matter. But we'll pretend that it does. So they've got a new printing of Death, Frost, Doom. They've got two adventure compilations, including Adventure Anthology Death, where Lamentations reprinted their old adventure, Fuck for Satan. You heard that right. Plus Adventure Anthology Fire. And rest assured, Adventure Anthology Blood will be published in the future. 
No Rest for the Wicked, a soft cover edition of the random esoteric creature generator for classic fantasy role-playing games and their modern simulacra, and a reprint of World of the Lost, a tale of high technology and dinosaurs in 17th century Africa. Because postage from Finland is the biggest son of a bitch, and because all this new stuff is taking up so much space around the LOTFP HQ, we have a cool deal for you. Through the end of May 2019, when you order with track shipping from the LOTFP web store, you will get a free LOTFP tote bag and a free LOTFP t-shirt. You heard that right, folks. Free and free. Just leave a comment with the order with your t-shirt size and that you heard about the offer here. www.lotfp.com. That's www.lotfp.com for all your weird horror and fantasy role-playing needs. Here's something, and I love the idea of a free LOTFP t-shirt, so I, I might actually do that myself under a, some sort of stealth pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, speculative fact here, uh, just like Vandergraaff Generator, Lamentations has possibly an Opeth live album named after them, Lamentations. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's actually a fact, but until Michael says no fucking way, it might as well be. And... Uh, the reference there, of course, is that Vandergraaff Generator had still life before Opeth had still life. Now, if you had to choose between both still lifes, like you could only live with one for the rest of your life, which one would you take? You know which one I would take, Opeth? Jeff. Don't make, don't make me say it. Yes. <laughs> well, that, But that's only because that's one of the it's best Opeth, Opeth albums. Opeth. And while it's one of the best Vandergraaff albums, there are other Vandergraaff albums you would take before still life. Oh, absolutely. And maybe not many before Opeth still life. None, really. Yeah. I I think we both count, perhaps, Still Life as our favorite Opeth album, don't we? Mm-hmm. All right. Lots of love to Opeth and Jim from Lamentations. Let's talk about the Vandergraaf Generator name. Okay. It's, a, it's a misspelling of the surname of an American scientist named Robert J. Vandegraaff who created the generator in 1929. I know that sounds like a very Dutch name. I suppose his father was Dutch, or certainly a, a, a Dutch hey man, New, York, New York was New Amsterdam one time. There you have it. The Van de Graaff generator itself was a globe that sat on top of a column. Uh, it was basically an electrostatic generator. Uh, we see that depicted on the cover of the second album as well. It's an interesting name choice, too. I like it. Before I knew this band, I'd heard the name Van de Graaff generator around, right? And I always assumed they were in the kind of Krautrock or Kraftwerk sort of world with a name like right. that. I mean, yeah, sure. it kind of brings that up, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like some kind of it early... Doesn't, it doesn't scream like, you know, walls of modular sense and capes. No, no, yeah. It's it's like some sort of early pre-industrial pioneer or something. That's what I thought it was that anyway. Too, yeah. We get into God Bluff, their fifth album. And a terrific return. There was this uh, four-year hiatus between the fourth album, Pawn Hearts, which we just listened to a sample of, and, um, and this one. God Bluff arrives, same quartet lineup, still brings with it all sorts of weirdness and darkness, still has that menace and mystery and dread. Yet there's this kind of more, and I don't know if you agree, but this more worldly, mature approach in some ways. It, do, it does seem like they aged like a decade in terms of wisdom on that record. Yeah. It's, it's almost like they went through a wormhole and, and, and came back because it's such a, I mean, honestly, it's such a short amount of time. Um, but there, there is some sort of, some kind of maturity that occurred in, in those intervening months. 
You know what I think it is, though, too, is um, between the time of Pawn Hearts and God Bluff, there were three or four Peter Hamill solo albums that a lot of the guys uh, from Vandergraaff, aside from Hamill, of course, played on. Um, there was right. Chameleon in the Shadow of Night uh, from 73. There were two 1974 albums we've mentioned already, The Silent Corner in the Empty Stage and In Camera. Uh, and somewhere around there, Peter Hamill was formulating um, Nadir's Big Chance. So uh, some of that maturity we, we speak of that you've mentioned, that might have had a lot to do with it. You know, they were still making albums. They just so they, yeah, in, in some ways, they had more momentum than they ever had. Exactly. Totally. I mean, look, look at the productivity there. It's pretty incredible. So yeah, we get this album, God Bluff, four songs, each averaging around 10 minutes. Uh, there's a wonderful song in there we're not going to feature called Arrow. We are going to listen to a bit from the rather mighty Scorched Earth. Super great song. Uh, one that you picked, and I'm, I'm glad you did. And then some of the more fun and unusual deviations within The Sleepwalkers.
In those two snippets, we hear some guitar there uh, played by Peter Hamill. Uh, actually, some prominent bass guitar as well underneath it all played by Hugh Banton. So they didn't completely avoid the string things. They were just used sparingly and stealthily. And I mean, in Scorched Earth, too, like you hear like some of those same sort of menacing tendencies that you encounter on records two through four. Yep. And, you know, Vandergraaf, more than most bands is able to suspend competing tendencies. So like a lot of times when you have like this really ferocious, like dreadful Vandergraaf, you also have this deeply nostalgic and melancholy Vandergraaf. True. It's almost like, you know, you hear sort of, it's like you encounter in like modernist literature, this primacy of like formal innovation, but this like sadness that, you know, the... I don't know that the the um, symmetry and the the you know the perfection of form 
that you had in place like pre-World War One have been erased by the, the horrors of the modern world. You know, it's like the same thing in, in Vandergraaff. Like you have a band that was born out of the promise and the optimism of the 60s and then saw that extinguished like within a year. And I think even in, in their later music, you, you still hear those, the, those kind of like aching echoes. I think that's one of the reasons this band is so enduring for me is kind of the depth. Every time sure. I think I have them figured out and I kind of know Vandergraaff, I kind of realize that I don't. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I mean, I think just in the process of like preparing for the show and re-listening to all these albums, like I heard things that I'd never really heard before, nuances really. And, and, and speaking of nuances and depth and, you know, and, and range of style, probably a good time to talk about the Sleepwalkers. <laughs> um, and I think I know the the whole song of Sleepwalkers. It, it shouldn't be shouldn't be eclipsed by this one part that we're probably going to talk about. Well, no, it shouldn't be because the whole thing is great. It, it exists as as a song from front to back. But I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. So another obsession of mine, Mr. Bungle, <laughs> um, and, and, their, and their sort of de facto band leader, Trace Bruance's, um is notorious for denying influence and being as, you know, as, as evasive as he can possibly be. Right. Um, he's, you know, denied the influence of Frank Zappa naturally. As yeah, right. Yeah. I yeah, mean, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that first album doesn't have any Zappa in it, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, but, you know, especially on their second record, uh, Disco Volante, they started to sort of traffic in some even more exotic territory. Um, and and uh, on one of my favorite tracks on that album, one of their career highlights in my estimation, in fact, it's a song called Carry Stress in the Jaw. Yep. If you had the vinyl, there was this hidden track within the track, and you had to hit the groove uh, precisely to find it. But on the CD version, the entire thing is sort of enmeshed together. And um, there's this sort of cabaret, calypso uh, section where um, tr- uh, uh, Trevor Dunn, um, takes over on the vocals, and um, this uh, it's it's eerily reminiscent of uh, the mood um, of that one section of Sleepwalkers that we just listened to, which, as Jeff said, that song should not be appraised on the basis of that one part alone. It's just one little detour within it. But interestingly enough, that one section that we're talking about in Carrie Stress is just one little sort of grotto-like recess within that composition. Yeah. I mean, in, in fact, literally so. It's just uh, presented in a different way on the, the CD version. Yeah. But, uh, you know, you get the same instrumentation. You get the same organ sound. You get the, the gear of, which is that, um, that tubular-shaped um, percussion instrument that has ridges in it. And it's, it's struck by, a, you know, a, a small wooden mallet. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But anyway, a lot of the things that sort of characterize that one little section in, in Sleepwalkers um, also characterizes that one section and carries stress in the jaw. Yeah, and I've always listened to Sleepwalkers and thought, geez, I wonder if Trace Spruance heard this at an early age. Right. Like you said, we'll never really know. He'll never give that up. But uh, I'd like to think so in the same way that I like to think that he was pretty well versed in Zappa before forming Bungle. And, and Max Webster. Oh yeah, that's that's a good call too. There's there's some there's definitely some uh, bungleisms in Max Webster, which of course predates Bungle. So uh, <laughs> one one has to muse oh, about yes. that for sure. We're gonna move to the final album of Vandergraaff's first run. They dissolved in the late '70s, uh, weren't heard from again until the early 2000s. 
For this last album of the 70s, there was a break in the lineup as well. Early bassist Nick Potter came back, Hugh Banton and David Jackson left, and I, I think they left quite a gulf, and that was filled not only by Nick, but also by this guy Graham Smith, uh, who was from a band called String Driven Thing. So suddenly we've got a violinist in the band, Graham Smith, uh, and Guy Evans remained on drums. Uh, this all came out in the form of an album which seems to have kind of have had two covers and two names, The Quiet Zone slash The Pleasure Dome. Uh, but it's one seamless album. It's great, but unsurprisingly, it's a bit of a shift in sound in some ways. Uh, in other ways, it's total Vandergraph. And um, the name itself, they dropped the generator for this album uh, and the subsequent live album, Vital. Quiet Zone Pleasure Dome is eight proper songs. Uh, there's an epilogue called The Sphinx Returns, which is a callback to the song The Sphinx in the Face. Shorter songs, very interesting album. What's your take on this one? It's an outlier. And it, it's like, you know, as, as much as Peter Hamill is the soul of Vandergraaf Generator, I mean, Hugh Banton is such a, an essential protein in the overall Vandergraaf mix. Oh, yeah. And I, I think you, you hear that a little bit. It's kind of like I love The Outer Limits, but I always hear Blackie's absence, too. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, for, for people that don't know, the, the 2% of our audience that doesn't know, uh, that's a Voivod album, their seventh, uh, was the first one without Blackie on bass. Yep. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's almost a band that's sort of preparing for the 80s, too. Yeah. Um, yep. And I mean, in a weird way, like they're so revolutionary and so against the grain but their career was kind of like contoured nicely with what happened with other bands and other trends in rock music, at least experimental rock music throughout the 70s. The first conversation we had about this arc of Vandegraaff, you know, you mentioned like them having this interesting inflection point, And it was an inflection point in the history of British music in 77, For 78. Sure. We had uh, Hawkwind's PXR5, the Hawklords album. Uh, you had mentioned This Heat. Um, mm -hmm. There was like a synthesis of stuff happening at this time. And I think the Quiet Zone Pleasure Dome falls nicely into place there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the sort of working in um, opposing lanes. It's like, you know, Hawkwind and Vandergraaf sort of stripping down their sound, like distilling the sound in some way. And like beginning to sort of assume some of the characteristics of post-punk. Yeah. And then you had bands yeah. like This Heat who were more firmly rooted in punk rock and, um, you know, non-rock experimental music coming the opposite way. And in, at this one point, they all kind of converge. Right. And it, it makes for a really interesting confluence of bands, like, all in, you know, within England alone. You know, another reason I think Vandergraaf is just so valid on every level. Quiet Zone Pleasure Dome is, for me, uh, I don't know about you, and please speak to this, but like to, for me, it's distilled in this one clear highlight. It's always stood out. This song has always outweighed the other songs. It's one of the best Vandergraaf songs, period. Uh, a favorite all-time song for me. I'm so very involved when I, whenever I listen to this song. Happens to have an amazing song title, which of course we like here. It's called Yellow Fever, Cat's Eye Running. There's a slash in there. There's a parenthetical in there. We're going to listen to most of it. We're not going to listen to the final minute of Drifting Violin and Soft Noises, but um, you like the song as much as I do? I love it, and it is the highlight. Yeah. Uh, listen, you're probably going to hear some pretty extraordinary qualities of this era of Vandegraaff circa 77.
walking in the evening. I was looking for something good, clean, fine, pure, straight. But instead I found a bunker wall of gates. drama of that song is really the first thing I respond to. I, I think it's the highlight of that thing, the, the tension and release of the, of the whole song. All the melodic choices and kind of arrangement choices and how the instruments interact with each other. Just really talk about exceptional music. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is such an emotional performance, too. And, like, he sounds so desperate during it. You can, yeah. like, very, very easily hear how vocalists like Rob Halford and Bruce Dickinson and also vocalists in more, you know, extreme regions of heavy metal and rock music would be so inspired by him. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, really, he's just, you know, he's he's a character. Um, and, yep. and there's like no one that has a voice exactly like Peter Hamill. <laughs> For um, sure. And I think one of the other interesting things to note about that album um, in terms of its differentiation from the rest of the Vandergraaff catalog, but also sort of consistent with other things that were happening in rock music at the time is the sort of anti, I don't want to say antiseptic because that has bad, it, it seems pejorative to me, yeah. but like the, the cleanness and the, the fidelity of the recording itself. Um, and it's striking to me 
you know, the difference that you could, uh, that, you know, studios and engineers were able to, to achieve in four or five years in the 70s. You yeah, know, I mean, listen, like, listen to yeah. stuff from 74 and then go to 77, 78, 79. I mean, that's, it's, it's remarkable. It really is. Um, and and I'm, I'm not a fan of this band, uh, per se, like all the respect in the world for them, um, probably over the, you know, the stretch of their discography. One of the most amazing um, gathering of musicians, um, and I'm, I'm talking about Steely Dan, mm-hmm. um, and their last album, Gaucho, which came out in 1980. I mean, really, in terms of just technical fidelity, like, I don't think that anyone has made a better sounding record since then. Yeah, I mean that that was a thing. Like at the cusp of you know a cusp of the eighties and like into the late seventies, of course, there there was such a gulf between how things sounded on record and and what was happening in the studio versus the early seventies. There was a lot a lot of technological progress in that era. I've always thought of nineteen eighty one as a favorite. It's I don't know why, right. but. You know, a lot of it has to do I with Martin a, I Birch. A, I have a couple of reasons that I might conjecture. One of them is named Martin Birch. <laughs> You're right. That was, that was one of my guesses. All you have to do is look at the albums he produced by Iron Maiden, Blue Oyster Cult, Black Sabbath. You know, he was just so good at capturing those bands in the studio. I don't think any of those bands have ever sounded better. And he was just using the studio to all its best capacities at that time. And like, not just Martin Birch. Let's move on from that. There's so many good sounding records from the early 80s. Um, I think people think of the 80s as this kind of thin, too crisp digital era. But that's that's the mid to late, okay? Right. 81, 80, 79, all that, all that kind of stuff sounds really, really good in the best hands and by the best bands. And I I think we're hearing some of that being ushered in by Vandergraaf here in 77. Oh, yeah. Dude, like Martin Birch's productions from that era, they feel like couches, you know? Yeah. You could just like rest in them. (laughs) That's amazing. I I like the couches. That's awesome. (laughs) This is just like just the thickest, most beautiful sounding drums and guitar tones. Yep. Yep. No, big big fan of that era, how things sounded. You know, I even think of the Eloy albums that came out in late 70s, early 80s. Totally. That's that's just some of the best sounding stuff ever. And um, yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, yeah. Big fan of that that era for sure. Well, let's go back to Pawn Hearts though. For all this uh, late seventies, early eighties fawning we're doing, let's go back to Pawn Hearts uh, from seventy one, if I'm not mistaken. We have to listen to Man Erg, right? I, this for this for me, I think this is like truly visionary rock music. This anticipates a number of things that would happen well over a decade later. Yeah, I think of, um, we mentioned it earlier too, when Tom came up for the afternoon, we listened to Nothing Face and, and, and the fact that Vo- Voivod have always been vocal in their appreciation for Vandergraaf. I think we hear why in this song.
Super fantastic, super great. And not to overstate his name, but you really hear Robert Fripp bringing in some pretty crucial stuff to that composition. I, I think you can understand oh, yeah. how Piggy would hear that and be turned on and inspired. These like fractured ambushes. <laughs> Dude, that is, that's the next Canvas Solaris uh, record title. <laughs> I'd, I, I'd be honored. Yeah, <laughs> I will, yeah, I'll, I'll, you'll you'll get due credit, but <laughs> but yeah, wow. I mean, I, hardly anything more needs to be said. But if you if you want to say it, that's a that's a great 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 tune right there. Dude, I'm sorry. I'm just like kind of reeling from your fractured amp. Right. That is amazing. <laughs> awesome. Thank oh you. Oh my god, that's the shit. Every now and then I come up with some. But... <laughs> no, that's that's pure gold, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in time, in the late 70s, Hamill went completely solo. His discography grew. Uh, he's got about 40 albums to his credit as a solo artist. Lots of them good to great. They're not all mandatory. I've, I've bought and gotten rid of a couple. But he's remained interesting and challenging. That was his sole focus until the early 2000s or early mid-2000s. He got back together at some point with the main core of the band, uh, and they started making records again. The present album came out in 2005. Pretty good. Uh, there was a really, really standout song called Every Bloody Emperor on it. And um, I guess it's just incidental that it's another great Vandegraaff song with this with the word emperor in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. The album proper was a two-disc thing. Uh, the second disc, the improv, just doesn't work. It's not all that listenable. I mean, what did you listen to that thing? I'm, I'm uh, not particularly enthusiastic about improvisation even normally yeah. and even done by skilled improvisers Th that disc for me fell flat on just about every conceivable level you and i agree on improv although i think we deviate from the opinion when it comes to king crimson because they're masterful mm. with that agreed okay agreed. yeah the, but the rare moments in like rock history with where a group could like improv it, maybe henry cow some others but i mean you're talking about like players that occupied the most rarefied air in rock music for sure and and as great as vandergraaff is i don't think they pull off improv that well um this is proven on this album and it, it was really proven in 2012 they came out with this all improvisational pretty much terrible album called alt alt i bought it got rid of it just about as quickly as i bought it and you know the me, title, man. The, the title itself was sort of stylized, too, wasn't it? Yeah, like all, all caps. caps. I, you probably like immediately were like, "I'm going to hate this." Yeah, I don't play the I don't play the name game, man. I don't play I don't I don't play the word game. The the whole like yeah alt thing that the Skin Lab thing. Good lord, I, did I mention Skin Lab on this episode? The, the, like their logo is the best thing about them. <laughs> It's just silly, and 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 you know the, the album was not great, and uh, and you know me, like I want to with bands I love as much as I love Vandergraaf. I want the whole story. I want to own the whole discography, and I'm happy to own Grounding by Numbers. I'm happy to own Do Not Disturb. Some of the later Vandergraaff stuff that's quite good actually, but um, Alt is quite strong. Yes, Alt I don't need, but uh, one of their strongest reunion era albums for me, is Trisector. I saw them live in this era. They were operating as a trio. Uh, David Jackson had already left again. It was Hugh Banton, Guy Evans, Peter Hamill. They pulled off a great set at Nearfest in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It was, it was pretty awesome. This is a highlight of that album. This is a song called Interference Patterns.
2008 Van de Graaff generator, still Van de Graaff through and through. I think at times when I've seen or heard, and I've been lucky enough to see Universe Zero and Prezant live, I've kind of wondered like, gee, I wonder if these guys like Van de Graaff, because there, there's some intersection there's no there. There's no doubt. No doubt yeah, for you? Yeah, I mean, because Van der Graaff is, you know, if you're talking about sort of the canonical, you know, first wave prog bands, yeah. of, of most of those... Vandergraaff has a caustic vibe and a nihilism um, that I could, and also sort of uh, uh, an economy of motion um, mm. that I could see, and, and, a, and a compositional rigor um, that I would think would appeal to to bands like Prezant and Universe Zero, and um, I could see you know Henry Cow being you know contemporaries of uh, of Vandergraaff admiring their work too, and and sort of so on. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think you're right on the money in, in thinking that. And that's Vanograph Generator. We could easily do a second show. Maybe we will uh, around episode 103. And hopefully a Hamlet solo episode. Yes. You down, you down for that? I'm down for the ham. Thanks so much for listening and uh, tolerating our slow steps on getting back on track with episode 31 here. We get new listeners with every episode. We're really psyched when people find us, go back and binge on old episodes. Uh, want to give a shout out to a few of those people. We don't mean to leave anybody out, but uh, a Norwegian by the name of Roger Johnson contacted us recently and listens to us. And, you know, you can probably imagine we're pretty psyched when they... Uh, Norwegian tunes in <laughs> uh, a guy named simply Anthony D from New York uh, checked in um, loves what we're doing. Thanks a lot. If you want to contact us, we love it. We love to hear from you guys and gals, although <laughs> let's admit it. It's mostly guys. <laughs> although we, we welcome the female contingent if they're out there. Um, <laughs> you know, review us on iTunes. Uh, that really helps a lot. Please like us on Facebook, and we, uh, we'd like to throw in a few extra things there. Uh, please donate to the cause with a little bit of money if you can. Time is a very valuable thing, and we appreciate that. That's PayPal ID RadicalResearchPodcast at gmail.com. You can also write us at RadicalResearchPodcast at gmail.com, and you can contact us through the contact link at RadicalResearch.org. So for Radical Research episode 32... Um, we have corralled one of our great friends and supporters, and I've been a supporter of his for about 20 years now, in fact. Um, I'm talking, of course, about Portland, Oregon's estimable Jason Walton, uh, formerly of Agaloc, now of Karata, and um, also some um, really interesting solo work. Um, we are going to be talking about a mutual favorite subject, Michigan's under the radar and often misunderstood thought industry. Mm -hmm. um, for this next episode, we have asked Jason to actually pick out uh, the entire repertoire of songs that we will be featuring. Um, he has very generously agreed to do so. And we have actually yet to hear his selections, um, but we await them with bated breath and are very, very excited to do this, uh, this first really collaborative episode. Um, it could maybe lead to some other interesting things down the road. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Hunter, of course. And uh, thank you, Rotting Christ, for taking $75 real quickly out of your pocket. 75 Oh, was it more? 
Yeah, well, let's just not let's not disclose the. <laughs> Seventy-five, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> what a deal, you say? <laughs> here, here. We'll see you next time for Radical Research episode thirty-two: Thought Industry. <laughs>